0: Well, good morning, Oakridge. Man, it is uh, just a, a delight to be able to be here to be with you this morning. We've kind of had an, an interesting season, if you will, an interesting couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we had Eternal Vision here with us sharing a concert, and it was just a a powerful moment. The Holy Spirit's presence was just thick as they ministered to us, and 10 people who were in the building that day were responding to God, moving in their life, saying, I want more of Jesus. I want to draw near and connect my life to the good news that is Jesus Christ, and we were so excited for that. Can we get? Give it up. God moving in that way is what it is all about, right? John Wesley once famously said, You have nothing to do except to save souls. your life doing that work right and and so we celebrated that and and last week we came into the service and and pastor christia and i even before we got here on sunday morning just felt this stirring of the holy spirit in our hearts kind of listening to what was going on at asbury and other places and we just felt like god was saying we're just going to hit pause for the morning on whatever you had planned And so for us, it was kind of fun. We were letting some of our leaders and worship team know, God wants to take over the service today, and we don't know what that means. So just be ready. (laughs) Um, And it was kind of fun for us, and and we used some elements that we had planned, and, and we just had a moment of just prayer and worship and just uniquely sitting in God's presence. God wants you to sit in his presence. He wants you to sense and to know how deep his love for you is. To pause the frenetic pace of life that you might sense and draw near to the Holy Spirit. And so we did that last week. We were planning to start a new series last week and that didn't happen and we kind of decided that we were going to start it this week, although we're splitting what was going to be week one's message into a couple of weeks and you'll probably figure out why as we move on. Now, if you've been with us at Oak Ridge through January, through the beginning of the year, we kind of introduced a word of the year that we felt like God gave us as the theme of the year and that word of the year is relationships. We said we really feel like God is calling us to focus in on relationships because as human beings, we were created for a relationship with God and we were created for relationships with others. And we had a theme verse that was really kind of helping us to tie in this theme that we felt like God wanted us to memorize as a church family. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, what does it say? It says, because we loved you so much we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Now, some of you have gotten lax on your memorization. We'll help you out a little bit so you can say it one more time. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We ended this series with this challenge. That you would prayerfully seek God and say, God, will you reveal to me one person that you want me to have an intentional relationship with? Somebody who is maybe disconnected from you, disconnected from your people. And God, I can be the representation of you in their life and build an intentional relationship with them. And we asked you to put their name on a card and to place it on the cross as a, a kind of a visual reminder of giving that person and that relationship to the Lord. And and many of you have done that. Some of you haven't. We would encourage you, there's still cards. There's still envelopes up here. If you've prayed over that person and you know who they are today and you didn't a few weeks ago, still do that. And we were encouraging you. Some of you are great with relationships. Some of you are extroverts and you're good at, at building relationships and you don't need any tools. Some of you are like me. And social situations and relationships as an introvert can be a little bit terrifying. And having a tool to kind of help us in relationships can be a little bit easier. And so we said, here's the deal whoever that one person is, do the 111 challenge. Once a day, pray for them. Once a week, reach out to them. Send them a text, call them, walk across the street and say hello. Reach out to them in some way. And once a month, do something kind for them, getting together or doing something that's nice. And so we would encourage you to be intentional about those relationships. The goal, the hope, would be that some of us are growing those relationships and seven weeks from now is Easter Sunday. And if you've been praying and you've been talking and you've been doing things kind for that person in seven weeks, you might have the opportunity to say something like, I don't know what your plans are for Easter. I'm going to Oak Ridge Wesleyan Church on Easter Sunday and I'd love to have you join me if you'd be willing. And maybe God would move in their heart that you would share your life and the gospel with them. Today we're launching into a new-ish series. We're kind of going to continue to talk about relationships, but in this series we want to specifically explore the base or the foundation of human relationships. We want to talk about the relationships that we have in our homes, most often with our spouse and with our children. If you have a Bible with you this morning, it might be a paper Bible, it might be a digital Bible, or maybe you need to reach in front of the chair in front of you and grab one of those to borrow, but I'd invite you to get your Bible out. to know how much God loved you that you have a Bible to read in your language that you can understand. And then I'd invite you to lift that Bible up nice and high and just say, I got my Bible, PJ. If you can open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be focusing on Genesis chapter 1 and 2 this morning on kind of the creation story of human beings and how God has made us and specifically trying to look at the relational nature of how God has created us as human beings. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, 26, it says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals over all of the creatures that move along the ground so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them God bless them and said to them be fruitful increase in number fill the earth and subdue it It's very important for us that we keep these verses in mind as we try to understand our relationship with God and with each other, with our family and with creation itself. Now if we flip from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, we see the story of creation is kind of retold. Genesis chapter 1 is the days of creation, right? God creates something on day 1 and 2 and 3 and kind of follows through. And then there's this story of the Garden of Eden that happens in Genesis chapter 2. Now I don't know how exactly you read those two stories, but to me it's a retelling almost of the same story from a different perspective. For me, as I read Genesis chapter one, it is almost the story of creation from God's perspective, if you will. And when I get to Genesis chapter two, it's the story of creation from Adam's perspective, from the, the perspective of the human being. And so we're going to flip to Genesis chapter two and look at the creation of humanity as it's told again, from a slightly different vantage point. We'll, we'll start at verse seven and we'll kind of skip a little bit, just trying to focus specifically on human relationships this morning genesis 2 7 says the lord god formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being it was the moment when god took together the dirt that he had made and formed it into something and he ruach into the man the breath the spirit of god god's very spirit into this man he became alive in verse 15, the Lord God then took that man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now whose job has that been up until verse 15? It's been God's job, right? This is what God has been doing. He has been creating the world. He's been forming everything together. He's been working in creation and he's been caring for creation. And now he puts this man in the garden and basically says, partner with me. At this moment, I've breathed my breath. You have my spirit in you. You have become alive and now do what I've been doing, right? Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all of the birds in the sky, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep And while he was sleeping, God took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and the two of them become one flesh. Here in Genesis chapter 2, we can see a little bit more of the detail of the order of God's creation of the family unit. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and you miss that God is a God of order, you're missing something as you read Genesis chapter 1. It is a, a very orderly creation account. And I think the order is important for us to catch that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's Genesis 1.1. It's the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. God was the preeminent, preexistent, first one that existed, and he created everything that came into being. It was created by him and for him. And the first thing that we read about these humanities relationships is that God creates a human being who is in relationship with God. God gives this human being the breath of life, and he tells this human being to do what he has been doing. It is noted that the man is not able to find a suitable partner for his work among creation. And yet he is created for relationships, and thus a woman is created. And this woman, by contrast, is now one with whom he can and should have a relationship. She is like him, and she bears the image of God. And because she came from him, she completes him. And the two of them form one flesh. Two chapters after Genesis 2 and Genesis 4, the man and women live out God's original commandment to them to be fruitful and to bear children. And I believe as we begin to think about the relationships that we have at home, and we begin to look at the creation story and the order in which God creates, I believe that there is a priority of relationships set up for us in the opening chapters of Genesis. And it looks like this. God first, spouse second, children third. In our relationships, in the way that God originally creates human beings, the first relationship that the human being has is the relationship that he has with the God who breathed the breath of life into his lungs and said, I want you to do the work that I have been doing. I want you to partner with me in ruling and tending and caring for this created order that I have made. The first relationship that humanity has and the first priority relationship that humanity has is with God. The second relationship that God creates is out of the man he creates, the woman. And there is this marriage relationship. There is this spouse that is put together so that they can partner together in doing the work that God has given them to do. And the two of them are not just two, they are one flesh. So the first priority relationship is God. The second priority relationship is our spouse. And children are the third priority relationship for human beings. I think this is so important as we launch into this series, particularly in our culture. We have a culture that, if we're honest, often flips this around. We worship children. If we're honest, we so often see our culture worshiping children as the very highest priority of life. And so many families get everything wrong at home because the children become everything. Their schedule dictates everything. What they want to do is the number one priority. I have to do the best for them. Often spouses are left with the scraps and the leftovers after what happens with giving to the children. And then maybe, maybe if we have time to show up for church once a week, or to open a Bible, or to spend some time in prayer. Maybe there's some scraps given to God at the very end. And yet I think the created order of how God creates the family unit is important for us to keep in mind. Our priority relationship, the number one most important relationship is our relationship with God. The number two priority relationship is our relationship with our spouse. And our number three relationship should be our relationship with our children. Now, if you joined us in our last series, uh, we talked a lot about the fact that we were created to be in relationship, to have koinonia with God. And there was a, an entire Sunday that we devoted to that relationship. And if you happen to miss it, I'd encourage you, go back on YouTube or, or we podcast on Spotify and Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Go back and find that message and listen to it. It is the most important relationship that you have is your relationship with God. In this series, we want to move on to those next two relationships, and we also want to try to cover, what if I don't have those relationships at home? What if I'm single, or I'm unmarried, or I don't have children? And so we're going to try to cover some of that as well as we move through this series. Today, we're going to spend some time just trying to lay some theological groundwork for the marriage relationship. Next time we come back to this series, it's actually going to be three weeks because of Missions Conference, but we're going to come back and hit a little bit of the practical. So today, buckle up your theological seatbelts. We're going to talk about some of the theology or godly wisdom dealing with your relationship with your spouse. And one of the things that I think is important for us to understand, biblically speaking, is that your spouse is created as a co-equal helpmate. The structure of God's design should not be missed as we read the passages in the opening chapter of Genesis. Your spouse is a co equal helpmate. In Genesis chapter 1, when God has the idea to create humanity, it says that God said, Let us make mankind in our image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So that male was made in God's image and female was made in God's image. And he told them to be fruitful, increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the fish and the birds and the animals. And God gives this work to males and females co-equally. And when you get to Genesis chapter 2 and we see the creation story of Eve, it's important for us to know where does God create Eve from? God doesn't create Eve from Adam's hair so that she would symbolically be over him and rule over him, nor does God take a toenail off of his foot and create the female underneath him that he would stand over her. But God creates Eve from the man's side that she would stand next to him as an equal in the relationship. Throughout history, there's been a lot of errant teaching about the role of men and women in the family unit and a marriage relationship. But God's purpose in creating the first marriage and the first relationship was that these people, the man and the woman, would be a reflection of himself. In Genesis chapter 1, God says, Let us make mankind in our image our God is a triune God, which is a mind-blowing theological concept. It's difficult to fully wrap our heads around. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are all eternally existent, and they are all with us, yet they are distinct in their personalities, and yet there's not three gods. There's only one God, and yet they all exist. God isn't made of a substance, but if He was, they would all be made of the same substance. They all submit and serve one another. They all work together, and yet there's only one God and (laughs) Trinitarian theology is a little tough for us to wrap our heads around but God says in Genesis chapter 1 I am in relationship we are in relationship and so let us create mankind in our image and so when God who is in relationship This Trinitarian three-in-oneness creates beings in his image. He creates males in his image and females in his image. And he says that the two become one. So that something about their relational nature, while there's some kind of a distinction, there's also some kind of a unity. And in that, they reflect who God is. In Genesis chapter 2, eve kind of comes it almost seems again i think this is adam's perspective a little bit god has created adam and he's given him work to do within the garden and from adam's perspective god is kind of walking around the garden and everything's all right and adam's kind of doing his thing partnering with god tending creation and all of a sudden god looks at him and goes that's not good (laughs) in genesis chapter one everything was good here god says that's not good this guy's alone something's not going to go right Men can probably testify that this is true. Leave me alone, and something not good is probably going to come from that, right? And and so God kind of sees this, and he creates Eve. But from Genesis chapter 1, from God's perspective, she was always on his mind. God said, let us make mankind in our image. God knew what he was going to do. When he created Adam, God had Eve in mind already. He was going to make male and female in his image. He already knew that it wasn't going to be good for Adam to be alone and that he was going to create a helper for him. The NIV uses the word helper. Other translations will say helpmate or helpmeet when describing who Eve is supposed to be to Adam. And I think sometimes we have this idea when we read the word helper that it sets up this kind of difference in, in, in a hierarchy for us. Maybe you are fans of the 90s sitcom uh, Home Improvement. My family's been watching this show again on, on Hulu and... and The the main character, Tim Taylor, has an assistant with him, Al Borland. And everybody loves Al. And all the time throughout the show, it's this running gag that everybody loves Al. And Tim is always quick to remind them, Al is my assistant. He assists me. I am the tool man. I am the leader. I am the authority here. Sometimes we read this kind of idea into Genesis chapter 2 that Eve was going to be the helper for Adam. But it's a poor reading. It's a poor understanding. Because the word helper is the word azer in the Hebrew. Say Azer for me. The Azer, if we I think the best way to interpret the words of the Bible is to look at the Bible. <laughs> to see how is this word used again in the Bible. And if you look up the word Azer in the Bible and you begin to follow throughout the Old Testament where the word Azer is used over and over and over and over again. It refers to God, such as in the Psalms where it says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my azer come from? My azer comes from the Lord. My help is God. And so when God says, I am going to create Eve as a helper for Adam, God is saying, I am going to put my image in this relationship for him. She will literally be the representation of who I am in this relationship to Adam. This is not Eve as the assistant who assists me. This is Eve, the representation of God in the relationship, who is to partner with her spouse. On page one of the Bible, there's only one authority in a marriage relationship, and that is God himself. And God creates the male and the female in his image, And he says, both of you are to represent who I am in the relationship that you have. You are co-equals with one another. You are to azer, to help one another, to the work that I am giving in Genesis 1. I've given this work to both of you. In Genesis chapter 2, I give this work to both of you as human beings, and you are co-equal with one another, and you are to represent who I am in helping your spouse to carry out the work that I have given them to do. Practically speaking, this has profound implications for our marriage, for how we see ourselves, for how we see our spouse. And I think it becomes even a little more clear if we go to the New Testament and we begin to look at the Apostle Paul and his words for the marriage relationship that we find in Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. holy and blameless in this way husbands ought to love their wives as they do their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself after all no one ever hated their own body they feed and care for it just as christ does for the church we're members of his body for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife the two will become one flesh this is a profound mystery i'm talking about christ in the church however each of you should also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband Paul, I think, gets a little bit confusing with the Ephesian church with these analogies that he's trying to bring out, but he's really trying to help them to understand that we are called to mutual submission as a reflection of the relationship that God has with us. We are created as co-equals to help, to azer, to represent the image of God in the relationship. And Paul begins to define, what is this going to look like? How does this work? What is the theology and the doctrine behind this for how your marriage relationship works? And so he says, wives, I'm calling on you to submit to your husbands in everything. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And we read into this sometimes. Again, I think we read into things, our culture and our cultural understanding of words. And we hear words like head, and and we think of things like authority. We think of the head of the class, the head of the table, the head of the company. The word head that is used in Ephesians chapter 5 is kephale. Can you say kephale? Kephale has a literal meaning and it has a metaphorical meaning. The literal meaning of kafale is the thing that's on top of your neck, (laughs) your, your head. The metaphorical meaning of the word kafale in first century Greek is less about authority and more about source, where something comes from. We might think of the term headwaters to help us understand where does something come from. And so what God is saying to wives, what Paul is saying to wives, is I want you to submit to your husband, because he is a reflection of the image of God in your marriage relationship. And so I want you to understand that he is the source of your life. Going back to the story of Adam and Eve, that Adam was created and Eve came from Adam, I want you to remember the story of creation when you look at your husband. And as you submit to your husband, recognize that you are submitting to God. He is representing the image of God who came before. And as you look at and as you submit to him, you are looking at and submitting to God who is the first priority relationship in your life. He is that source by which you exist. And so as you submit to him, you see the image of God in your willingness to submit to your husband. Now, This also had some pretty cool and profound implications in first century culture. Marriage worked a little bit different in the first century. Often marriage would be a man who went throughout the community and he would find a woman that he desired and either he would arrange with her father or he would talk to his father and the two fathers would get together and they would arrange a marriage. And so she was in a marriage relationship. The wife was in the marriage relationship because she had been chosen by her husband he had moved first. He had desired her and he had done what was legally necessary to bring her into his home, to care for her, to be there for her, to support her. And she has this ability to recognize who he is and what he's done and how he has moved first in choosing her, and she has a choice to make. Am I going to love him? Am I going to submit? Am I going to follow? Am I going to come under his home? And am I going to allow this person to have this relationship who has chosen me? And it's a reflection of Jesus in our lives. It's a reflection of the God who loves us and chooses us first. That even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That even our ability to choose him comes after he has already chosen us. And he has said, I want you, and I would do anything for you, and I would die on the cross to bring you into a relationship with me. And then we have the choice to say, as the bride of Christ, will we submit? Will we say, I recognize, God, that you have chosen me, that Jesus, you have desired me, and will I give my life back to you? So wives submit to their husbands as a reflection of Jesus, as a reflection of God, saying, I was chosen. Jesus chose me. My husband has chosen me. Will I honor them instead of being self-seeking about what I want? Now, in our culture, I think what is beautiful is we don't work marriage the same way, and actually both spouses can have the same viewpoint. Because so often in our marriages, Both couples choose, they have some level of choice and some level of recognition that whether it is my husband or my wife, that they chose me and that they are a reflection of Christ, that they are a reflection of God in whose image they are made in this relationship and that I can see that they have chosen me and I get to ask, will I be willing to submit, to honor, to follow, to trust, to not seek only my own welfare, but that of my marriage? Now, the husband, he's also called to submission, right? He is called to love his wife the way that Christ loves the church. Christ who gave up everything on the cross because his one desire for his bride, the church, was that he would make her holy, that he would cleanse her by the washing of water and the word, that he could present her to God without stain or wrinkle or blemish, that God would look at the church and say, I want to make her perfect for the mission that God has. And so a husband's role in his family is to say, what is it that God is calling my wife to do? What is the work that God has given? And how can I help her? How can I lay down my life sacrificially as the representation of Jesus? How can I submit to what God is doing in her life so that God makes her everything that God has for the work for her to do in her life? So he doesn't look only to his own selfish self-interests above that of the marriage relationship. But like her, he honors and respects and humbly serves alongside of his wife in such a way that God is honored. We are called to mutual submission, to look at our spouse and to say, they are made in the image of God. They're my co-equal put in this relationship that I would submit to them and in doing so that they would be the reflection of God and I would see God in who they are and that I could be the reflection of God to them and that they would see who God is in me. Because in the marriage relationship, we are created to be a reflection of a relational God in whose image we are made. Been a lot of theology this morning. We're going to come back to some of the practical implications for how we live this out in three weeks from now. I hope you'll come back and join us. But it is so important for us as we launch into understanding the relationships and the design that God has for us that we understand that God has given us a priority for our relationships at home, that He always must remain first, that our spouse should be our second priority and our children should be our third priority. That God has created us as a co-equal helpmate and called us within the marriage relationship to mutually submit to one another as the image of God represented in the relationship. Let me pray for you this morning. Father God, I thank you for the blessing of marriage. I thank you for how you have created us in your image. I thank you for how, Jesus, you set the example of what love and sacrifice and submission looks like. God, I thank you that you allow us to partner with you in everything that you do in creation. And even in this act of, of redemption that you're doing with your bride, the church, you call us in our relationships in our home to be a reflection of you. That we would bear the image of God in our relationships with our spouse. And so God, I pray for the marriages that are represented in our congregation this morning. God, I pray that we would see our spouse as someone created in your image. I pray that we would see them as the representation of God's help to accomplish the work of God that you have given us to do in this earth. I pray that you would give us a willingness to be submissive, even as Christ gave his life for the church. Help us to submit To recognizing that when we follow and submit to our spouse, it's not only them, it is the image of God within them that we are submitting to. God, help us to fall deeper in love, not only with our spouse, but as we see them in your image, help us to fall more in love with the God in whose image they are created. Help us to understand more of the love, the providence, the presence of God that is with us, and help us to fall more in love with Jesus our Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We want to again remind you that you have the opportunity to worship through the giving of tithes and offerings as you exit the building this morning. We want to invite you back as missions conference gets started uh, next Sunday. We hope that you will join us for a very uh, awesome week of missions. Go with God and have a great week. God bless.